If you love the History Extra podcast and want to help us keep bringing you brilliant episodes, then please share it with a friend or a fellow history fan who you think might enjoy it. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Hola. Hello, this call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow, ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow, now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier, thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Awaken your senses with a curiously refreshing Hendrix Cucumber Lemonade. Curious how? Cue the aroma. Marvelous. Cue the taste. Magnificent. Cue the cucumber. That's the refreshing secret. Hendrix is uncommonly crafted with cucumbers, roses, artistry, and imagination. Other gins are ordinary, but Hendrix is refreshingly curious. Discover Hendrix Gin cocktail recipes at HendrixGin.com. Please drink the unusual responsibly. Hendrix Gin, 44% alcohol by volume. Bottled and imported by William Grant & Sons, New York, New York. Copyright 2024. Why is it that with sparkling water, I'm always playing guessing games with what flavor I'm drinking? Is it citrus? Is it aluminum can flavored? Mm, not sure. Sparkling ice, though, they really mean flavor. Like in-your-face flavor. Orange mango, black raspberry. Don't even get me started on the strawberry lemonade. Kiwi Strawberry slid right into my Taste Buds DMs last night and let them know who's boss. No subtleties there and no sugar either. But it does have vitamins and antioxidants. Find sparkling ice at a major grocery store or club retailer near you. Sparkling ice. Anything but subtle. Without thinking about it, we speak Freud. We talk about the unconscious, we talk about Freudian slips, we talk about control freaks, we talk about um, anally retentive people. And that's all come from Freud and it's just been adapted seamlessly into the way we talk and think. That was Martin Sixsmith on the history of psychology. Burials, if they were not deep, meant that uh, noxious smells and substances would leach out from the, the graves in, onto the surface, and there were rats and vermin who would feed off this disgusting stuff. And that was Ruth Levitt describing the problem of 19th century London's overcrowded cemeteries. Hello, and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar and I'm the editor of BBC History magazine, which is the UK's best-selling history magazine. It's available in all good news agents, or you can take out a subscription from anywhere in the world. Visit historyextra.com forward slash subscribe for the latest subscription offers. And we also have digital editions available for a range of devices, including the iPad, iPhone, Kindle, Kindle Fire, Google Play and Zinio. For details of all of these, head to historyextra.com forward slash digital. Our first interview this week is with Martin Sixsmith. Martin is an author and broadcaster who previously worked as an advisor for the Labour government. He was recently played by Steve Coogan in the film Philomena 
which was based on his own best-selling book. Martin's latest project is the Radio 4 series In Search of Ourselves, which tells the history of psychology and is currently being broadcast each weekday at 1.45pm. I visited Martin at his London home earlier this week to get the lowdown on the series. I've seen a quote in a few places that said that you first got interested in psychology because after working for the Blair government, you felt you needed your head examined. Is, is that true? Well, it's partly a joke. It, it, it's a joke in the sense that uh, it reflects the sort of bad experience I had mm. with the, the Blair government at the, at the end of the five years that I, I worked for them. But what isn't a joke is that uh, back in 2002 was a very difficult uh, time in my life. Mm. Um, you know, I'd uh, fallen out with Tony Blair and Alistair Campbell, and as a result of that, I, I didn't have a job. So um, I was looking around for something new to mm. do. And to be honest, I um, took up psychology because I was writing fiction at the time. And I thought that actually understanding psychology would help me with the, uh, the creation of the characters, the extrapolation of uh, you know, how characters think. In the event, it didn't help mm. at all. But uh, I actually found the course itself so intriguing, so fascinating, that I then went on to, um, to study psychology. And I did about um, uh, four or five years, not full time, but um, you know, quite extensive uh, study. Your series looks at the history of psychology. When would you say that history begins? When, when, I know it's a difficult question, but when did people first start talking in this way or thinking this way, or does it just go back forever? Well, in a sense, we're all psychologists because we all think about the factors that make us act and think and feel the, the way we do. So, you know, um, right throughout history, um, people have thought about those questions. The way it's been approached has changed um, dramatically over the years because initially of course um, mental problems psychological problems were put down to external forces um, people um, considered it was either the will of the gods uh, when madness descended on somebody it was the furies pursuing him or in tribal societies it was uh, evil spirits and so the response to um, to that was exorcisms it was uh, in some cases trepanning drilling holes in in the head um, and so the first big change really was um, when Hippocrates came along and decided that actually it wasn't spiritual forces that mm. were causing the problems, it was, um, it was natural forces. So that was a big move forward. But modern psychology, I would say, begins in the latter half of the 19th century, where a, a sequence of events took place. Um, uh, first of all, uh, Wilhelm Wundt opened his laboratory in Leipzig in the uh, 1870s, and that's where experimental psychology had its, its roots. Um, Sigmund Freud uh, went to study in Paris, and that's really where um, psychoanalysis, in the form we know it now, mm. took on its sort of modern shape. Obviously, it has um, earlier roots in uh, people like uh, Anton Mesmer, the hypnotist at the end of the 18th century. And, uh, and that's really where modern psychology came from. And uh, from there, it spread out into uh, all areas of society. And nowadays, it really is almost omnipresent in our lives. Do you think the history of psychology has been affected by the other major events going on, for example, major wars or real sort of cultural changes? Have they fed into psychology, do you think? They have undoubtedly. Certainly war has been a, a, a terrific influence on, on psychology. Um, the First World War in particular, because before the First World War, mental illness was broadly put down to um, biological defects. Um, the idea of degeneration was a very... Um, prevalent idea that um, mental illness came with the genes. You had uh, degenerative families uh, and uh, 
it led to an almost sort of um, fatalistic attitude to it that we can't really do very much about it. Uh, but the First World War was um, uh, it changed things fundamentally because suddenly we had this whole generation of young men who were uh, going through the experience of combat and they were reporting with a vast range of mental illnesses and there was no way that the doctors could say this is the result of bad families, bad genes, it's not degeneracy, these are normal, healthy, um, uh, formerly sane young men. And in an odd way, uh, that experience of war gave psychology a great boost because um, the psychologists then were able to say, well, actually, we can make a difference. Um, we have, or we are formulating ways to deal with the problems, what we would now call PTSD, uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. And um, psychology was able to show its value. So society, instead of um, looking on uh, mental illness as a sort of slightly shameful thing that had to be um, hidden away in the asylums, suddenly brought it into the open. And um, psychology had, had a great boost from that. And Equally, in both the First World War and the Second World War, psychology as a tool for selection moved forward uh, very quickly because you had um, vast numbers of men being called up to the armed forces. You had in some way to match the right men with the right jobs. You had to choose um, the right caliber of officers, for instance. You had to choose people who could do very specific and specialized jobs like submariners or pilots. And uh, again, psychology stepped forward with this um, vast array of selection techniques, uh, questionnaires, um, aptitude tests. And again, psychology proved its value. Um, the results of some of the tests were a bit questionable, but, uh, but they, they became a sort of standard accepted part of public life. And then again, that was a great sort of boost for psychologists. So war, in an ironic way, has been, has been a good thing for the, the profession of psychology. Um, you talked earlier about, about psychology proving its value. Um, at what point do you think psychology first actually became, looking back at today, became useful? At what point were they first actually, do you think, doing good for people? Were their theories actually working? Well, you might say that psychology has been doing good for people since the earliest times, that um, you know, the very sort of fundamental um, type of psychology where people just talk about problems. Um, you know, you could imagine uh, people in ancient Greece or even you know, in prehistoric times being troubled by mental um, dilemmas, by mental problems, and talking um, was the cure for that. That was formalized in the, uh, the methods of Sigmund Freud, for instance. Mm -hmm. So talking, the talking cure became a, a science, in inverted commas. Uh, but it's always gone on. And you could say that religious people, uh, priests, rabbis over the years have fulfilled that function. You could say that when families were more close-knit than they are nowadays, that mm -hmm. function was fulfilled by people talking within families. And actually, as the family has started to decay, and as religion has played an ever um, lesser part in public life, perhaps then that was when the formal psychologists stepped forward and stepped into the breach. Um, so in terms of when it's proved its value, um, I think it's always been valuable. Um, I don't think it's always been accepted. It's, there have been times when psychology has been uh, looked down on, when people have mistrusted it, when people have feared it. And in certain societies, uh, for many years it was feared, certainly in Nazi Germany it was feared, and certainly in the Soviet Union mm. psychology was feared, but also used as a tool for ill, not for good, in both of those societies. So, yes, I think probably the modern era is when society has really sort of spread out into all areas of, uh, of society and has become really accepted and valued. It was interesting what you were saying about um, Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union. Why was it that they feared it so much? Um, I think 
in Nazi Germany, it was always a Jewish science. Um, psychology was connected with people like Freud and Adler, Adler um, and uh, the other Jewish um, psychologists. Um, in the Soviet Union, it was a very materialistic society. Um, they didn't like anything that had the sort of spiritual side attached to it. So religion was um, stigmatized. Psychology was slightly put in that boat. But uh, both in Nazi Germany and in the Soviet Union, uh, psychiatry was misused. It was misused mm -hmm. by the state. Um, in Nazi Germany, it was misused to diagnose hundreds of thousands of people who would be put through the euthanasia uh, program. And psychiatry, to its great shame, went along with that. In the Soviet Union, it was used to um, stigmatize and punish dissidents on the sort of slightly spurious uh, basis that anybody who opposes the perfect worker state must by definition be mad, therefore we should lock them up. And uh, psychiatrists in the Soviet Union, again to their great shame, invented this completely spurious category of vyalatikusha um, schizophrenia, slow flowing schizophrenia, which had no medical basis whatsoever to it, except that it was used to be applied to dissidents who could then be locked up in these psychushki, um, psychiatric institutions, which were essentially prisons. Over the years, how closely has psychology either followed or even led other sciences, related sciences? Well, it's, um, I would say it had a, a great impact, um, not just on um, uh, science, in terms of learning from science, what psychology did inherit were two traditions. One was the philosophical tra tradition of the, um, uh, the philosophers in France, in Germany, and in Britain, um, the, uh, uh, the British philosophers like Hume and Locke and Makosh, um, who thought about the human condition. condition. So it inherited that, but it also inherited the tradition of physiology. So people like Galvani, who'd been cutting up frogs to see how nerves worked. So it inherited that scientific tradition. And then in turn, it also uh, influenced science uh, as it developed. But its biggest um, impact, its biggest influence, I would say, has been on culture. And in the 20th century, psychological themes have absolutely pervaded um, literature, music, theatre um, and art. Uh, certainly in Western society. And it's absolutely, you know, Freud, uh, a lot of his science is now decried, it's criticised, but what you can't decry is the, the legacy he's left in terms of cultural impact. It's, it's absolutely unmissable throughout the whole of our culture. You mentioned in the series that Freud is, you think, one of the most pivotal intellectual figures of the 20th century, I think. I would say yes, the, the science that he introduced, the, uh, the whole idea of the subconscious, um, the idea that we're much more than our conscious mm. mind, uh, this idea of the iceberg, of you know, the, the little bit above the waves and then the vast depths below which influence our conscious world, um, that was absolutely groundbreaking. And um, you know, I think I say in the series that we all, without thinking about it, we speak Freud because mm. we talk about the unconscious, we talk about Freudian slips, we talk about control freaks, we talk about um, anally retentive people. And that's all come from Freud and it's just been, you know, adapted seamlessly into the way we talk and think. Do you think Freud has somehow got a bit of a bad name, though? Because some of his, his perhaps more outlandish theories are the ones people think about, like the Oedipus complex, a lot nowadays. I think he's got a bad name for two reasons. One is that a lot of his theories weren't very scientific. They weren't evidence-based. Um, he came up with, you know, all these theories about what was causing uh, mental illness. He came up with the psychosexual stages of um, human development. But he never, you know, he very rarely actually went out and did the case studies. Mm. Um, he extrapolated. He was a great imaginative thinker. 
that's one um, you know reason he's got a bad reputation. Personally, I find him very satisfying as a, a as a thinker, if not as a scientist. The other reason I think is his obsession with uh, with sex, um, that he um, he argued with a lot of people in the. Uh, psychoanalytic community about what are the underlying causes of mental problems um, and Adler and Jung were willing to look for those causes in quite a wide range of uh, things but Freud for a long time insisted that um, sexual repression was at the root of all our mental problems. His theory developed as he went on um, he was willing to accept that it wasn't physical um, abuse that had happened in childhood which was causing these uh, mental problems later in life, that it could be imagined um, abuse or it could be fear of sex or it could be guilt about sex. But nonetheless, most of Freud's theory was connected with sex and I think that was quite shocking in Victorian society, a very repressive Victorian society. And I think his reputation never completely recovered from that, even in the sort of liberated years of the 60s. Even nowadays, to some extent, people seeking treatment for mental illness, there's an element of stigma about that, which you wouldn't get, for example, for a physical ailment. Has that always been the case? Have, has there always been a bit of a stigma associated with the idea of needing psychological help? I think there has, and I think it's in Victorian times it was to do with the thought of not being man enough, that sort of mm -hmm. idea of cowardice, that um, if you can't cope with um, you know, the stresses and strains of life, you're somehow a failure. And you know, as we said, that the war did a lot to um, change that perception, but it certainly persists, persisted after, after the war. It persisted into, uh, into very recent times. I think one great positive thing has been that uh, the stigma attached to mental illness has greatly lessened in recent years. And I would say in very recent years, probably since the 1970s, probably since people like Fritz Perls, um, Aaron Beck, and some of the, uh, Carl Rogers, uh, some of the American psychologists who were willing to talk quite openly about it. And uh, it, it became almost a sort of um, a trendy thing to talk about mental illness, to talk about going into therapy. And again, cultural figures have done a lot to help that. Woody Allen, for instance, has spoken mm. at great length about it, and it's made it more accepted. I'm slightly concerned that perhaps maybe the pendulum is swinging a little bit too far the other way, that um, nowadays we have this whole raft of celebrities who are very keen to step forward and talk about their bipolar disorder or their autism or their Asperger's syndrome and it's almost becoming a little bit of a, of a fashion accessory but obviously it's much better to have that than to have the stigma attached to mental illness which in many cases prevented people coming forward for treatment which could have been offered very straightforwardly to improve their lives to completely transform their lives and people weren't willing to come forward for that treatment. And over the years has it been certain types or classes of people that have traditionally sought sought this kind of help or has it been a kind of universal thing? Well in the early years it was reserved for uh, an elite, a financial elite, um, an educated um, elite and uh, people of working classes or, or with less wealth simply had no access to, to that sort of, uh, of treatment. It's now much more democratised, treatment is much more available, certainly the, the latest programme, the IAPT programme, the Improved Access to uh, Psychological Treatment, is uh, helping. It's making at least a very basic form of um, psychological therapy available to, to everybody who, who wants it in theory. There are hiccups, but it's in theory at least doing that. So certainly it's, it's moving forward. I think there's also been a change in the standards of what we're willing to put up with, because in the old days, people would have suffered in silence mm. in a way that, you know, you, people would talk about, you know, my mother's and father's generation would talk about, oh, my nerves are suffering, I've got a bad mm. attack of nerves. And, 
you just sort of shrug and get on with it. Whereas now there's much more a feeling that, you know, there must be a solution, there must be a cure for everything. And perhaps people are treating minor discomforts of life as something which is actually um, pathological, which is something which has to be treated, something which is of danger in itself. And I, I just, you know, wonder that we're kind of sort of setting the standard of what life should be like. And if we are moving to the position where we think that life should be universally happy mm. and untroubled, then I think we're kidding ourselves. You know, we have to accept that life has its ups and downs and psychology, psychiatry, and psychotherapy, for all the good it does, can never iron all those out. And something you mentioned at the start of the series was this idea of David Cameron trying to gauge the happiness of Britain. When did governments first become interested in the population's overall mental health? Very recently is the answer to that. Um, and, you know, the sort of the practicalities of that scheme, um, you know, I think the jury is still out. Um, how can you judge the... They don't talk about the happiness, they talk about the well-being of the nation. Very difficult to do, but nonetheless, it's a, a noble aspiration. It's a goal which is well worth looking at. And if the evidence can be gathered, however imprecise it is, which would then help the government or society as a whole to treat mental health then that clearly is a, a noble aim. Government I think probably has its sort of slight its own agenda that what it wants to do is cut the number of working days lost to to mental illness but whatever the uh, the reason behind it is you know if, if it actually makes progress then clearly it's something that has to be welcomed. The other thing I would say is that actually um, IAPT might be regarded as, in some quarters as a little bit of a fig leaf that um, spending on sort of standard mental health treatment has been cut, um, right. um, not just by this government, but I think, you know, going back over the last um, decade or couple of decades. So it's not a panacea, um, the IAPT programme, um, and it has to be seen in conjunction with the treatment of much more serious mental health conditions, which only the sort of traditional psychiatry can deal with. Um, IAPT really is for the, the common cold of uh, mental illness, which is depression. You know, we all suffer from it. We're on a, all on a spectrum of being depressed or not being depressed. Um, it can deal with that, but it can't deal with the more complex uh, questions. Having done this series, has it changed your understanding of psychology from where you started off? Well, it's been a great eye-opener. Um, it's been, a, you know, I say it's been a privilege to, to, to make this series because... Um, it's uh, allowed me to talk to experts in the field. I'm certainly not an expert. I had you know, a little bit of sort of um, training, academic uh, training in psychology, but to speak to the leading experts in all the individual fields that I've been able to cover over these 25 programmes has been absolutely tremendous. And uh, it does have that sort of, um, it provides that feeling of sort of solidarity that other people are interested in the same things that you know I'm interested in, that we're all interested in. We, we all really want to know the answers pretty much to the same questions. And um, it's been you know, a, a great joy to be able to see the way that other people have approached these, greater minds than mine have approached these questions, and uh, to talk with them about the, the solutions that they've come up with. This, this episode is going to be going out about halfway through the series, so can you just give us a brief idea of what's going to be coming up for the remainder of the series? Yes, um, it's, the title of the series is In Search of Ourselves, A History of Psychology and the Mind, and it has that sort of little detail in it because it's, it, psychology covers a, a vast range of, uh, of things. So what we did in the first five programmes, the first week, was to cover the sort of talking cures, mm. which traditionally have been applied to what used to be called neuroses. 
In the second week, uh, the second five programs, program six to ten, we covered the medicalized model of psychiatry, which has traditionally been applied to what has historically been known as madness, so psychoses, the, the loss of contact with reality, schizophrenia, uh, bipolar depression, and paranoia. In the next ten programs, so weeks uh, three and four, we looked at experimental psychology, which is not aimed so much at the individual or at abnormal mental behaviour. It's looking at how society as a whole, how people as a whole behave and think and perceive and remember um, and communicate and express themselves. So it's looking at what we would broadly term normal behaviour and the behaviour of groups. And then in the last five programmes, what I've been trying to do, um, programmes 21 to 25, is sort of pull those together and see how all the, the psych sciences, um, psychotherapy, psychology, um, psychiatry, have affected our lives in the, the practical ways that these sciences have affected our lives and are continuing to uh, affect our lives. And then to look forward to see the sort of impact that psychology could have in, in the future. That was Martin Sixsmith. And as I mentioned, In Search of Ourselves is currently being broadcast on weekdays on BBC Radio 4 at 1.45pm. And you can catch up with previous episodes on the iPlayer for a limited time period. Hola. Hello. This call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier, thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With Uber Reserve, good things come to those who plan ahead. Family vacay? Reserve your ride as soon as you book your flights. To all the planners, now you can reserve your Uber ride up to 90 days in advance. See Uber app for details. Now it's time for the latest history news with our website editor, Emma McFarnan. A history-mad schoolboy has turned his bedroom into an Admiral Nelson Museum and is charging friends and family to visit. Nine-year-old Shay Williams from Norwich became obsessed with Nelson last summer after learning about him in a history book. He has since crammed his room with hundreds of items of Nelson memorabilia, including a piece of metal from his flagship HMS Victory, the Metro reports. He is charging £2 for adults, 50p per child and £4 for a family ticket to visit his bedroom and see his collection. In other news... Photographs charting the 145-year history of the Los Angeles Police Department have gone on display in an exhibition. Taken by police officers and criminologists over the decades, the photos were once used as evidence by the LAPD Special Investigations K Division, which was set up during the 1920s, the Independent reports. Among the pictures in the exhibition are photos from a 1934 crime scene, a 1950 suicide and the investigation of the Manson murders which brought terror to LA in the summer of 1969. 
The exhibition, titled Unedited, the LAPD Photo Archives, was displayed at the Paris Photo Fair in Los Angeles last weekend. Meanwhile, Kim Philby, one of the most successful spies to work as a mole at the heart of the British establishment for the Soviet Union, had no regrets, a previously unheard recording has revealed. The Telegraph reports that a voice recording made during a talk Philby gave for KGB officers in 1977, 14 years after defecting to the Soviet Union. There is an awful lot of work for us to do, it seems. I have no regrets whatsoever about the past, just the mistakes I made doing it. The recording was played for the first time on Saturday at a conference held at Cambridge University from where Philby graduated in 1933. Philby passed information back to his Soviet handlers from his position as a long-term mole at the heart of the British Secret Intelligence Service, MI6. Thank you, Emma, and don't forget to visit historyextra.com for all the latest history news. Before our next interview, I'm pleased to announce that tickets have now gone on sale for our 2014 History Weekend Festival. Taking place from the 16th to the 19th of October, In the Wiltshire town of Malmesbury, the festival features talks from dozens of leading historians, authors and broadcasters, including Hilary Mantel, Paddy Ashdown, Dan Snow, Earl Spencer, Susanna Lipscomb and Tom Holland. To find out more information and to purchase tickets, please visit the festival website, which is historyweekend.com. By the mid-19th century, London was facing a major dilemma. A huge increase in its population had given rise to overflowing, foul-smelling cemeteries as the Victorians struggled to cope with the problem of disposing of their dead. Dr Ruth Levitt has been researching this issue for her forthcoming book and our features editor Charlotte Hodgman spoke to her recently to find out more. So Ruth, your feature um, talks about um, burials in London in the 19th century. What was it that caused such extreme overcrowding of London cemeteries during this period? The main reason was population growth. The uh, rise of urban population was very dramatic in the 19th century with the coming of work opportunities in the towns and the loss of some work opportunities in the countryside. So there was an enormous migration of working people into towns and cities in order to find work. And so the population of localities greatly rose, especially uh, around workplaces, and the housing stock was often not uh, great and often there wasn't a lot of room. Uh, So the conditions of overcrowding were very substantial in, in city areas. And so the simple arithmetic of more people means more deaths meant that there was a greater demand for burial space in churchyards and graveyards. And they soon were full because they had already been accommodating uh, bodies for sometimes hundreds of years. And they were restricted spaces because the overcrowding of uh, the population meant that more and more houses had to be slotted in, built in into small spaces and workplaces were built, factories, shops and so on. And so the amount of spare space for a graveyard, an existing graveyard to expand was very limited indeed. And so soon the busy ones, where the busy graveyards, where, i.e. where there were large populations or, or lots of deaths around them, soon filled up. And so that was the main reason why the, the cemeteries soon in the 19th century became unbearably full. 
Mm. And, and what sort of dangers did these um, overcrowded cemeteries pose to the, the general public? Well, huge health problems because uh, the uh, burials, if they were not deep, um, meant that uh, noxious smells and substances would leach out from the the graves in, onto the surface and there were rats and vermin who would feed off this disgusting stuff and uh, then wander around in people's houses and in the streets. And so there was a high health risk and they, they were gruesome places, dark, smelly, and not at all the kind of places that uh, relatives wanted their, uh, their loved ones or at least their their um, families from centuries ago, if not generations ago, to be uh, have their resting place in such unpleasant places. How did grave diggers and officials cope with this rise in, in the number of deaths and the number of bodies that were being buried? They did two things that are fairly obvious to us nowadays. They removed coffins soon after burial to make a bit more space, and they also stacked bodies so that instead of it just being one body per grave, it might be three or four or five. And so the top ones were very near the surface and the bottom ones were were um, hopefully disintegrating over time. But uh, that was one way to deal with it. They, another way was for uh, churches, parishes to buy up or rent land that was available further away and turn those places into additional graveyards. And there are many examples of that where some spaces that were relatively undercrowded uh, because the housing stock wasn't so pressing on the spaces um, were turned into graveyards without any church or religious buildings but they became consecrated or, or not consecrated ground. I mean how did how did the public feel about this? I mean it's not doesn't sound like a particularly dignified way of doing things. Extremely undignified mm. but necessary because people didn't have a very a clever solution to this. The, the inexorable rise of the population that meant more deaths and more deaths meant more burials and more burials meant more burial spaces needed. And as long as people were burying whole bodies, that was uh, a rather difficult thing to solve. And Dickens wrote about this um, more, more than once and he became a campaigner for uh, changing the system because uh, he voiced the sort of concerns that you're mentioning, that it was really an affront to people's sensibilities to have such a shaming end of life uh, resting place for their relatives. I mean, and it did cost people quite a lot of money to actually bury their family in, in these places. I mean, um, you mentioned in the feature that ostentatious and costly funerals became quite popular during the period. Um, how, how much could it cost a family to bury a loved one? It could cost what would be in our time hundreds and hundreds of pounds. Um, in in those days, um, you had to hire, like now in a way, you had to hire an undertaker. But also the the ceremonies and the uh, customs of mourning and grieving were more standardised than they've become more recently. And so people would have to get a new set of clothes, uh, black clothes, or, and uh, they would have to be even distant relatives would have to wear these clothes for a long time sometimes many years and so that was an, an additional expense the coffin itself had to be posh it couldn't just be uh, if you wanted to impress your relatives it couldn't just be um, something plain and sometimes people went to the lengths of having a hearse drawn by um, horses with you know dark plumes and the 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 driver of the hearse being kitted out in something very special and so 
that what I think this issue raises, though, is the ambivalence that people had then and have now about what to do about death. That's to say that the ceremonies of uh, a funeral are as much to do with the needs of the living as they are to do with respectful marking of the end of a life of a, of a dead person. But of course, uh, the stating the obvious, the dead person has no idea what's going on, um, even if they've prescribed the format of their funeral. And I think that this reveals a very interesting dilemma that persists, what to do with a dead body that will satisfy the relatives who are alive. There is something so powerful about having the last sight of a body, or at least what represents a body. It might be a box, or it might be a maimed body, but at least something that people talk about the idea of closure. And I think that is to do with a something symbolic that apparently human beings need in order to complete their sense of respect for a life and to mark its ending. And burials, the sort of physicality of burials and coffins and undertakings and so on, muddle up all these things. So some of it is respectful and proper, but some of it is showing off or trying to prove that uh, one has enough status to be able to afford a, a smart funeral or sending a message out to the next generation. It could be all sorts of things, but I think you can follow what I'm saying here, that it carries so much more than simply the interment of a body in some ground. Mm. I mean, there, there were people who did actually benefit, though, from this kind of surplus of, of bodies in, in the graveyards. Could you maybe tell us a little bit about, about them? Yes, because the, what I think you're referring to is the cadavers that yes. were needed <laughs> by medical schools. So the rise of uh, interest in the professions, including the medical profession, was was developing and standards of training were rising too. And medical students needed dead bodies to dissect so they could learn what goes on inside the body. And uh, as long as bodies were buried and that was the end of it, there, were, there was a terrible shortage of, of cadavers for the students unless people left, bequeathed, in other words, bequeathed their bodies to the, um, to the medical school or if they were destitute or without relatives and it was possible to um, take the bodies legally. But there was a huge Ill illegal trade in cadavers and um, as we mentioned in the, in the article feature, the uh, notorious body snatchers, Burke and Hare, were selling bodies to the Edinburgh Medical School for £8 a throw, which is something uh, well over £500 um, nowadays. And um, these bodies were bodies that of uh, victims of their attacks, not, not natural uh, deaths. Oh, right. Um, I believe, anyway, I think that's right. Um, and so... There were beneficiaries, uh, but it's a rather gruesome way to benefit. Mm. And in the mid-19th century, um, garden cemeteries were introduced uh, to London. Um, what impact did this have um, on, the, on the problem? It was a dramatic change. I think we, we underestimate how big a change this was because we're more used to these sorts of cemeteries nowadays. But if you can imagine an overcrowded, smelly, uh, rat-ridden inner city burial ground, grave, graveyard, and then imagine a park, a landscape park with hills and trees and flowers and benches and uh, dotted around this space uh, respectful, neat 
graves headstones um, with people's names on. That's the enormous change that was made, and again, symbolically, from something that was frightening, shameful, and distressing to something that was calm, pastoral, peaceful, contemplative, and in some cases, beautiful. And these cemeteries were a recognition that something had to be done. And so seven of them were built in a circle around the city, of, well, the, 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 the whole town of London in what were outside London, really, places like Kensal Green and Highgate, Abney Park, Brompton and Nunhead and Tower Hamlets. And these were built in the 18, late 1830s, early 1840s. And they instantly made a difference because they were setting the scene for what would become the established practice. And later in the 19th century, uh, the urban graveyards were closed down. That's to say they were, could accept no more burials and they could not be built over or desecrated or have anything nasty done to them. They had to be preserved and and hopefully cleaned up a bit. Um, but the uh, spaces that were available in the the garden-like cemeteries were huge in comparison. And so there was much capacity to accept more and more and more of the deaths, the bodies from the towns. And it did change attitudes quite substantially. Um, and it wasn't only for rich people to be able to afford these these uh, burials in, in the, in the out-of-town cemeteries. The pattern was copied by towns and cities around the country. And the 19th century also saw uh, the introduction of cremation, didn't it? Um, what were reactions to this? Well, the reactions were very cautious and very uneasy to start with. It was uh, a, an invention um, of the ancient world to burn bodies, not something recent, but it had never taken hold in the West where the prevailing religions uh, were uneasy about disposing of the physical remains of people to that extent. Whereas in the East, in many parts of the East, it was required practice to burn bodies uh, very soon after death. And again, similarly for religious reasons, to release the the soul, the the, the person for for the new life for another life whereas in the west uh, in the christian west and in and in some other traditions it was regarded as anathema to destroy the physical body even though um there was an idea of a soul escaping from it arising from it but nevertheless that was the situation and in the middle of the 19th century uh th what was needed in the west was um, a high-powered furnace that could uh, dispose of human remains quickly enough and reduce them to ash. And that took until about the mid-19th century to be invented by some Italians and uh, an English public health physician, Sir Henry Thompson, became interested in this, read an article about it, went to see for himself and brought back the idea to England. And gradually around him formed uh, as it, what we would now call a lobby group, a pressure group to change the law because cremation was totally uh, illegal in this country. And gradually, gradually, uh, opinion shifted. And um, in the mid to late 19th century, there were cremations going on illegally, uh, but that, re that attracted a lot of publicity and that were uh, increasingly showing that, that it could be 
uh, a reasonable solution. And Woking Cemetery was the first one to build a crematorium uh, to burn the bodies and produce the ash for the relatives to bury or handle as they wished. And it was successful in the sense that it demonstrated the, the scheme worked and that it was satisfactory. But interestingly, it, it, the Cremation Act that legalized cremation was only passed in 1902, so after the turn of the century. So it just shows how how long it was, uh, how long was needed for opinion to shift sufficiently for that act, that bill to pass through Parliament. There was a lot of discomfort about it, especially because it, such a long tradition of burial um, did give people some sense of permanent security. Um, you, you know what I mean, a, a sort of a keeping keeping in line with tradition. And this felt very changed very different whereas now nowadays more bodies are cremated than are buried not not to do with space but to do with the the family's choice mm. i mean it's it's a fascinating topic and probably one that i don't think gets a lot of um probably re people researching um what sort of sources uh, have you looked at to, to find all this out I've looked at some really fascinating material. Uh, the the um, report that's quoted in the feature produced by Edwin Chadwick in 1843 was a seminal document. He was a really important reformer and he was Secretary of the Poor Law Commission and he made an investigation of burial grounds uh, around the country. It was, a, it was a huge piece of work he did and he had informants who were doctors and families and local um, officials and so on. And uh, he reported in, in the language of the Times that, that there were putrid emanations from corpses in overcrowded burial grounds and that vaults were injurious to the health of the living. Um, however, Another source that I'd like to mention is uh, from the will of a man named William Kensett, whose um, family I've been researching for some time and I have written about in a book that's forthcoming. And I'd just like to quote you a, a paragraph from his will, which was written in 1855, so early, relative, sp relatively speaking, to the story we've been exploring. And he, he, he wrote a long and very interesting will. He was a furniture maker and also a local government uh, elected member for a while. And he said this, Believing in the impolity of interring the dead amidst the living, and as an example to others, I give my body four days after death to the director of the Imperial Gas Company, London, to be placed in one of their retorts and consumed to ashes, and that £10 be paid to them by my executors for the trouble this act will impose on them. Should a deference to fanaticism and superstition prevent them granting this request, then my executors must submit to have my remains buried in the plainest manner in my family grave in St. John's Wood Cemetery to assist in poisoning the living in that neighbourhood. And I think you can see from mm. that that he got the message early <laughs> on and he was bold enough to put this into his will and... Um, because there were no crematoria, he had had to think up this clever way to get his uh, body burnt. Um, it's not recorded uh, whether he was successful. I, I was going to ask, yeah. I, I suspect not, although the grave in St. John's Wood Cemetery is not um, evident. 
but um, I suspect it didn't work. But he was he was uh, an outspoken man anyway, and this was true to form. That was Ruth Levitt of King's College London. You can read Ruth's feature on this topic in the May issue of BBC History magazine, which is out now. Also in this month's edition, we're leading with the story of Queen Elizabeth I's war on her Catholic subjects in the 16th century. Plus, we're charting the adventures of British spies in Italy during the Second World War. We're exploring the scandalous reigns of the Georgians and investigating a curious tale of cannibalism on the high seas. If you like the sound of any of that, then why not pick up a copy at All Good News Agents or on one of our digital formats. And that's almost all for this week. As always, do get in touch with your views on podcast at historyextra.com and we may well read out some of them in future episodes. And on top of email, you can also contact us on social media. On Twitter, we're at History Extra. On Facebook, we're facebook.com forward slash History Extra. And do make sure to visit our website, historyextra.com, for all the latest news, quizzes, galleries, articles, and previous episodes of this podcast that go right back to 2007. Next week, we'll be joined by Andrew Lysett to discuss the Victorian novelist Wilkie Collins, while Robert Mayhew will be offering his thoughts on the influential Georgian economist Thomas Malthus. Do join us for that. This History Extra podcast was recorded on location in London and in Bristol and produced by Jack Fletcher. 